A warm welcome to First Move. Great to be with you this Tuesday and a jam-packed show as always, beginning with Kim Jong-un on the move. The North Korean leader's heavily armed train now in Russia, according to state media. Still no confirmed time for the meeting with President Vladimir Putin as the world, of course, watches on. The latest on that trip coming up. And catastrophic flooding. More than 2,000 people have lost their lives in Libya after a powerful storm and heavy rainfall. The fear is that number could end up significantly higher. A live report on that just ahead too. And the ongoing search for survivors. Rescuers continue to battle terrain and the heat following Friday's devastating earthquake in Morocco. All the details on those rescue efforts coming up too. And in the meantime, here's the global stock market picture on Wall Street. Stock futures pushing lower as investors await Wednesday's U.S. inflation data, the Consumer Price Index. They're not the only ones, of course. Federal Reserve policymakers will also be watching that number closely. Perhaps they shouldn't watch so closely, however. In the words of former World Bank President David Malpass, the Federal Reserve's monetary policy is broken. He says we're missing the true drivers of inflation, which is government policy and regulation. And the focus should be on actually cutting rates to grow the economy and fixing some of the other things. We'll discuss some of his solutions later on in the show. And dialing in, Apple set to unveil its latest iPhone at its annual event in Cupertino in just a few hours' time, while Google is going on trial in D.C., charged with violating antitrust laws in its massive search business. We'll have all the details on that, too, and what some of the consequences for Google might be if they lose that case. Lots to get to, as always, but we do begin in Russia. And these images from Russian state media show the North Korean leader's train in the far east of Russia. U.S. officials have long warned the talks between Kim and Putin could focus on weapon sales to Moscow after months of war in Ukraine. But here's how Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov described the meeting. Like with any neighbor, we consider ourselves obligated to establish good, mutually beneficial relations. We will continue to strengthen our friendship. And we've learned that North Korea's top officials, including its top military leaders, are among Kim Jong-un's delegation and that Russia's defence minister will also take part in these meetings. Joining us now is Sumi Terry. She's former CIA officer and former Asia programme director at the Wilson Centre. Fantastic to have you on the show with us. Is this first and foremost about weapons and are you expecting some kind of deal on arms to be struck? Absolutely. This is about technology transfer. Um, I'm sure Kim Jong-un is not going to, you know, Russia in meeting with Putin just for food and fuel, although North Korea desperately needs food and fuel as well. They are going to get, Kim Jong-un is going to get um, technology for his military satellites, for his nuclear submarines, for his long-range ICBMs. North Korea has tested 80 missiles, uh, ballistic missiles, last year. Uh, you know, they are expanding their nuclear and missile program, and he needs uh, nuclear uh, missile technology uh, from Russia. And of course, Putin needs artillery, uh, ammunition. Uh, so this is a win-win for Russia and North Korea and loss for the United States and the West. And we're just showing uh, pictures just in to CNN of uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un arriving in Russia, as you can see there, walking along the 
green train past a, a military procession there in salute of him and then up along a red carpet and up the stairs. And we'll just show you that again as we um, as we play it. But you can see the photographers there welcoming Kim Jong-un into Russia. Um, excuse me, just to carry on with what you were saying there, it's, it's not just about weapons. There are other things, but obviously that is at the crux of this relationship. The West, the United States, the National Security Advisor um, to the White House, Jake Sullivan, warned North Korea that there would be consequences. What kind of consequences could we be looking at if you look at both North Korea and at Russia? They're both sanctioned to the hilt. Is that what we're talking about if we do see the Steelers, as you presume we will? The problem is, and I understand why Jake Sullivan, obviously, in the Biden administration wants to emphasize that there will be consequences because this is not good news for us. However, what are the consequences? It's very difficult when both countries are very isolated. Uh, The intention behind leaking intelligence about this meeting uh, last week was to pressure North Korea to not meet with uh, Putin, to pressure Kim Jong-un. But how can we pressure him when he's already isolated? There's no talks between Washington and Pyongyang. And the international environment quite, is quite favorable, actually, for North Korea in this sense. Kim Jong-un can act with immunity, with impunity without any kind of consequences. Again, there has been some 80 missile tests last year. United Nations Security Council, there's no action because China and Russia are refusing to implement sanctions or to pressure North Korea. So at this point, I'm not certain uh, what kind of consequences that we can really give out to North Korea in particular. Uh, these countries are both isolated. Um, again, you know, I think this is a sign of desperation for Putin to have to rely on North Korea uh, to get arms, uh, pariah states like North Korea and Iran. But, uh, you know, I just don't see how we can penalize North Korea further. Um, so there's not much we can do to stop this meeting. Yeah, I think the phrase you're looking for is uh, nothing to lose with regards um, Kim Jong-un. And um, to your point about the isolation for both of these individuals, I want to hit on the point that you mentioned, though, about technology and, and nuclear weaponry in particular, because clearly I think part of the allure for Kim Jong-un here is uh, perhaps the provision that will help them with their nuclear weapons program and the technologies from, from Russia. The question then is how do the Japanese and the Chinese respond to that if there's some kind of deal on that? Because clearly they're not going to be happy. And and President Putin is also aware of that fact, too. Of course, China, Japan, South Korea, no one's going to be happy about this. At at least with Japan, Japan will be working closely with the United States and South Korea. Uh, Biden has already invited President Yoon Suk-yeol of South Korea and Prime Minister Kishida for a trilateral meeting at Camp David. So the three countries are working together to uh, you know, uh, with trilateral exercises and information sharing and intel sharing and so on. China is an interesting question how China will uh, act on this because China is not, I'm sure they're not going to welcome this news. Also, North Korea traditionally has always played China and Russia off each other. Uh, and so if Kim Jong-un gets closer with Putin, it means North Korea will be less reliant on China. So China's reaction will be interesting to watch. And we'll say we shall. Sumi Terry, former CIA officer and the former Asia Programme Director at the Wilson Centre. Thank you so much for joining us and for your insights. Now to Libya. An authorities say that more than 2,000 people have died after catastrophic flooding and another 10,000 could be missing, according to the Red Cross. Officials say entire villages were washed away as the equivalent of eight months' worth of rain fell in a single day. 
Ben Weedman has been following this story for us. Ben, we heard from the head of Libya's Emergency and Ambulance Authority on CNN and they said they simply didn't anticipate the scale of this disaster and that people weren't evacuated in the path of this water ahead of time. That's part of the challenge here. People just weren't prepared. Yeah, people weren't prepared because this sort of natural disaster uh, has not happened in Libya in historic memory. Uh, so everyone was taken uh, by surprise by the intensity of this storm, Daniel. And uh, as, the, as the sort of pictures and accounts are slowly emerging uh, from the stricken area, particularly from the city of Derna, uh, the situation really is looking grim indeed. In fact, CNN was able to get through to a doctor uh, who, from Benghazi who made his way to Durna and he says this, the hospitals in Durna are out of service. There are no emergency services. People are working randomly at the moment to pick up rotting bodies. Now, we've also seen video, in fact, of what looks like dozens of bodies covered with blankets and whatnot uh, littered outside it appears a hospital, and obviously the hospitals aren't working. Uh, the situation is utterly catastrophic uh, in this area. It appears that two dams upstream uh, from Derna burst, essentially sending a tsunami through the middle of the city. Yesterday, Julia, we heard a spokesman for the Libyan army loyal to the government in the east of the country uh, saying that entire neighborhoods in Derna were simply washed out to see as far as the numbers go uh, we are hearing from one the health minister in eastern Libya saying that so far they've been able to identify 700 bodies uh, but that's really just the beginning of the emerging death toll uh, Tamar Ramadan who's the head of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent societies has said that the death toll in his words is huge and that the, we can confirm, he said, from our independent sources of information, that the number of missing people is hitting 10,000 so far. Now, aid is beginning to reach the area. Uh, the government in western Libya, based in Tripoli, has dispatched 87 uh, first responders to Benghazi, which is the capital of the eastern part of the country, along with a plane full of body bags. Turkey, according to President Rajib Tayyip Erdogan, has sent three airplanes full of search and rescue personnel, as well as uh, humanitarian supplies. And Italy today announced that it was sending a team uh, to assess the situation in eastern Libya in preparation for a larger uh, aid effort. But clearly, the, the real picture depth of the damage and the loss that has been caused by this uh, storm is only beginning to emerge. Julia? Yeah, our thoughts with everyone involved there. Ben Weedman, thank you for that report. And new video from Morocco, too, as rescuers continue their urgent work to locate survivors after Friday's devastating earthquake. So far, more than 2,900 people have lost their lives in the tragedy, and more are expected in the coming days. Nada Bashir spoke to people in some of the villages near the quake's epicentre, where residents are losing hope of finding anyone else alive. 
So this is one of the villages impacted by the earthquake, the village of Moulay Ibrahim. And you can see behind me just how high we are in the Atlas Mountains. This is a remote village, but it has proven easier to get to for rescue workers on the ground. In other parts of the Atlas Mountains, including the village we visited yesterday, Imiantella, it has proven nearly impossible for rescue workers to reach those impacted. In fact, when we spoke to residents there, they told us that yesterday was the first day international rescue teams had made it on the ground. Take a look. Stone by stone, hour by hour, the desperate search for survivors pushes on. The silence in this remote, mountainous village, punctured only by the wails of those who survived, now left to mourn. Well, for the rescue team here, this really is a race against time. There is a woman and her 12-year-old daughter buried beneath the rubble and for their family waiting anxiously for news of whether they have survived Friday's earthquake, they are quickly losing hope. Berzika has already buried 19 members of her family. Now, she fears she will soon have to bury her niece, Shayma. On Saturday morning, we could still hear her voice, she tells me. She was alive. Now we can't hear her. They took too long to get here. Until now, we've been digging through the rubble with our bare hands. If help had arrived sooner, we could have rescued them in time. Though small in size, the village of Imiantella was among the hardest hit by the earthquake, the deadliest Morocco has suffered in decades. But three days on, Rescue teams have only just arrived. The high, mountainous range simply too remote. The roads, up until now, still obstructed by debris from the quake. And with time running out, rescuers say this has now become a recovery operation. I think they are all working, uh, working very hard, but uh, till now uh, they don't need a dog for who search for life. So they confirm there's all the victims which... Uh, and this rubble has already passed away. Few lives in this close-knit community have been untouched by death. Each body recovered, a gut-wrenching reminder of the climbing death toll, already in the thousands. It's unclear just how many in this village are still missing. But for those buried beneath the rubble, just like little Shema, rescuers fear it is already too late. International rescue teams are now on the ground in many of these impacted villages. We've been speaking to aid workers on the ground and they tell us there are still villages across the foothills of the Atlas Mountains that they haven't been able to reach. Nada Bashir there with that report. And a historic day in Israel too. For the first time ever, all 15 of its Supreme Court judges are hearing a case together. They're being asked to decide whether the court has the power to overturn government acts that it considers unreasonable. For Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, removing that power is a key part of overhauling the judicial system. Now, Israelis have been protesting for months over the issue, and critics say Netanyahu is trying to steal power from the courts and is weakening Israel's democracy in the process. Hadis Gold joins us now. Hadis, just explain to us what's been going both inside of the court but also outside too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the hearing in the Supreme Court has been going on now for several hours since 9 a.m. This could be the only day of the hearing or could continue, could continue for just about one more day, but it's not expected to be a very lengthy trial of sorts. And what they're debating really in this hearing is the Supreme Court's own power. And this is also sort of a constitutional argument because the law that was passed back in July, uh, it took away the court's ability to declare government actions as unreasonable, saying that they cannot continue. This law amended a basic law. Now, Israel doesn't have a constitution. The basic laws are the closest thing to a constitution. So the reason that this was so historic is that the Supreme Court has never before nullified a basic law. Another interesting aspect of this is that the attorney general is not arguing, excuse me, the attorney general is not representing the government here. And that's because the attorney general, she she believes that this law should be nullified. She does not believe that this law could stand. So the government is being represented by private counsel. Now, the main argument behind the petitions to take, to nullify this law is that it harms the authority of the judicial, excuse me, <coughs> It harms the authority of the judicial branch and and deals a severe blow to the essence and existence of Israel as a democratic state. And the petitioners are also arguing that the way that this law was pushed through the Israeli parliament was inappropriate, essentially. Now, the government is saying that the Supreme Court does not have the power to take away or to change basic laws and saying that that power rests in the hands of the people, in the hands of the Israeli parliament. Now, what's been interesting is to hear the judge's response, to hear the judge's commentary. It's always difficult to try to ascertain how the judges were ruled just because of their comments during a trial. But they're bringing up some interesting points. They're saying, saying, Okay, if the Supreme Court does not have the power, that it rests in the power of the people and the power of the parliament, what happens if the government decides that there should not be elections for 10 years? What will be the check on that sort of power? And what's also really interesting is another comment from one of the justices saying, and I'll quote here, democracy dies in a series of small steps. Now, the crux of what the Supreme Court is trying to decide is how to ensure the government acts as that what they call reasonably if the judges are prevented from using this standard in the rulings. Because, Julia, here in Israel, in the parliamentary system, essentially the only check on the government, on the executive, on the parliament is the Supreme Court. And so the question is, if the Supreme Court is not able to use one of their tools in the bucket to declare government actions unreasonable, to prevent the government from taking any sort of action, where will that checks and balance lies? And that's why you hear that question about them saying, okay, if the parliament passes a law saying there can't be elections for 10 years, where will be that checks on Mm. the power? Because the, the people won't have that election again. Now, there will not be a decision on this in the, you know, in the near future. They have a deadline by January 12th, but that could be setting Israel up for essentially a constitutional crisis because there is still even a question about whether this government will abide by a Supreme Court ruling nullifying this law. So there could be a major judicial and constitutional clash. Julia. Yeah, it's brilliantly explained and it's very complicated. But I think the point is, where does the government's power end? Um, without the ability of the Supreme Court to weigh in on these things. The quote was important. Democracy dies in a number of small steps. Had us well battled with the cough as well. We could see you, uh, you, see you struggling. That's a pro. Um, had us gone. Thank you for that. Okay, straight ahead. Will America's major automakers hit the brakes and avoid a strike powerful enough to dent the U.S. economy? We're live in Detroit next. Plus, a collision course of a different kind. Former World Bank President David Malpass is here and pulling no punches, taking aim at what he calls broken Federal Reserve policy. That's later. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move and Feeling the Pressure. America's big three automakers, Ford, GM and Chrysler's parent company, Stellantis, are trying to resolve a labor dispute that could deliver a multi-billion dollar blow to the U.S. economy. If no deal is found, almost 150,000 workers could be on strike as early as Friday this week. And last week, members of the UAW were preparing to man the picket lines. Omar Jimenez is in Detroit, where he's been hearing the union side of the story. Omar, I I saw the chief actually on with Jake Tapper yesterday, and he said the only people that will be hurt by a strike is the billionaire class. And I quote, but just what are some of the sticking points in these negotiations from the union's perspective? That's right, Julia. We've been talking to union members, and some of those major sticking points are over higher wages, cost of living adjustments, pensions, return of uh, retiree health care, things that workers say would make their jobs fair given the amount that is expected from them. Now, the automakers insist they want to reach a deal without a strike, avoiding what happened in 2019 when the union went on a six-week strike. But union workers say they only made incremental progress that time around This time, they don't want just incremental progress. This fight feels different. It's different. Why is that? Because there's more at stake. We don't want a strike, but you're leaving us no choice if you don't give us a fair contract. We are the union. It's what's on the minds of nearly 150,000 United Auto Workers who are days away from a potential strike. What do we want? When do we want it? As they work through negotiations, they say the world got more expensive, but their wages got left behind. People used to aspire to be part of the you know, automotive workforce. I can't remember the last time I went to the grocery store and was able to fill my cupboard and my refrigerator. Renee Dixon says even with 12-hour shifts, she sometimes has to work a second job just to keep up. I don't think I should have to do that. If the pay rate and, you know, everything stays the same, there's no path. I'm, I'm not, it's just going to, I'm just going to fall further and further back. It's why the union is pushing in part for at least a 40 percent raise over four years, cost of living adjustments, a return of traditional pension plans and retiree health care, and more. But the union and big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, are very far apart on it all. It's still slow. But we're moving. Uh, so, um, you know, we have a long way to go. Meanwhile, the countdown has gone from weeks to days. One analysis says a 10-day strike on all three automakers, for example, would cost the U.S. economy more than $5 billion. But union leadership sees this fight as bigger than all of that, especially as GM saw record profit last year and Ford saw near record profit. The talking heads, the pundits, the companies want to say that, you know, if we strike, it can wreck the economy. It's not that we're going to wreck the economy. We're going to we're going to wreck their economy, the economy that only works for the billionaire class. It doesn't work for the working class. I was able to raise a family in the auto industry. And it was a different industry than it is today. Randy Sandusky retired in 2005 after working in the auto industry for decades. Part of what's been lost in recent years is retiree health care for those hired since 07. Their benefits, he knows, can be crucial. I know some that are crippled, they can't hardly walk and stuff. I used to build handicap ramps for them to get in and out of their houses. And they're all retired from General Motors and they don't get a lot. You know, it's just a sad. It's part of why workers now hope to make more than just incremental progress. I'm raising my family. I'm doing it. I'm not I'm not crying. But 
I'm not able to do what I should be able to do. Whatever's going to happen, I know that our membership is not going to not going to back down. It's time for the average worker to be appreciated. Because if you're more happy, you're willing to do anything to make the job work. And when you feel appreciated, that's priceless. Now, one of the points the workers in the union stress is that back between 2007 and 2009, as Chrysler and as Chrysler and GM headed toward bankruptcy and federal bailouts, workers made concessions to keep the companies afloat in part and to keep their jobs. And they say that they haven't gotten some of those concessions back, specifically uh, re retiree health care for new hires and the pension plans. And so talking to one of the workers, they said, we scratched their back and now it's time for them to scratch ours. Yeah, you can understand it with the billions of dollars that they're pushing into transitioning to cars of the future or hybrid electric vehicles. They're like, hey, isn't there a bit of money here for us too? We'll see. Omar, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, still to come, searching for a solution. The US government tackling Google in the biggest anti-monopoly case in decades. The details next. Welcome back to First Move. Google may soon find itself searching for solutions. It's facing the U.S. government and more in a legal showdown that could mean weeks spent in court. The Justice Department and dozens of states accusing the search giant of abusing its dominance by harming competition. The trial could reshape what is one of the Internet's most dominant platforms. Anna Stewart is live and on the story for us. Just spell it out for us because it is the biggest case for the US government and the tech sector since Microsoft was tackled back in the late 1990s. What's Google standing accused of and what's their defence? So at the heart of this, it's all about the search engine. Uh, and the DOJ says Google accounts for nearly 90% of all general search engine queries in the United States. I don't think that would surprise anyone at all. But the big question is, has Google unlawfully gained that dominance? And a huge focus of this lawsuit are the lucrative deals that Google has struck with smartphone makers like Apple, browser developers like Mozilla, wireless carriers, to make Google the default search engine. So when you buy a phone, it's what's just natural on that phone. It's easier, of course, to opt in than it is to opt out. Now, Google, of course, argues its business practices are legal, that they are commonplace, and that quite simply, its search engine is the preferred option for so many people. Now, what happens in terms of uh, the result of this case will have a huge bearing on Google. Just to give you an idea, its search business provides more than half of Alphabet's revenue. So what happens if it loses the case will be a very interesting result. And what happens if they do, Anna, because if we go back in time again to the Microsoft case, the result was, look, the, the view that they had to be broken up. They then challenged mm. it. The decision then was severe restrictions. What might happen if they lose? I mean, it's a really good question. You and I, of course, are far too young to remember the Microsoft DOJ case in the late 90s, early noughties. But yes, they tried to uh, restructure the business. That's what the government wanted, but that was overturned. I think in this case, the DOJ obviously could go for a big fine. I don't think that's what they want. They could go for a restructure or they could simply go for some sort of way to stop Google from abusing what they may perceive to be dominance in the search engine, if, of course, uh, they win that lawsuit. So there are a few options there. They all would have a big bearing, though, on Google, how it does business and potentially its revenue. So really in Google's interest over the next 10 weeks, it's going to be a long trial uh, to argue a good case. 
Yeah, the DOJ has to prove consumer harm. That's the key. And I have to say, anecdotally, I find myself on other search engines and I get furious with myself and and I do go back to Google. But one of the comments that I picked out, which I really love, the Google president of global affairs, this is a backward looking case at a time of unprecedented innovation, um, including breakthroughs in AI, new apps and new services, all of which are creating more competition. That's an interesting argument, too. Not quite sure how you prove it. Alice Stewart, we'll see. Thank you for that. Apple set to launch its iPhone 15 lineup in less than four hours is expected to unveil the biggest change to the phone's design in more than a decade, including a USB-C charging port. Apple has titled this year's event in Cupertino Wonderlust. Claire Duffy joins us now. Um, As exciting as I am by quicker, more sophisticated charging, it's not that big a deal, surely. Yes, Apple will have to roll out some additional updates, some additional feature announcements for this iPhone 15 lineup if it wants people to upgrade. And this is a really crucial sort of crux for Apple right now. The company's sales have fallen in the last three consecutive quarters because people just aren't upgrading their mobile devices as often. So Apple is going to have to announce some other things. We may see some of the more typical things like color changes, potentially a price hike. But this update to the USB-C charger would be really significant. It means that for consumers like me, I've got a phone for personal use and a phone for work use, and potentially my Android and my iPhone could be using the same charger, which would be, you know, a significant convenience for people and potentially really a reason to upgrade to this new iPhone 15. We may also see things like the next generation AirPods and Apple Watch in this announcement. And I think the other major thing I'll be watching for today is whether we get any updates about this Vision Pro headset. This is the headset that Apple unveiled earlier this year that will combine virtual reality and augmented reality. And it's expected to launch early next year. And so Apple may use today's event as an opportunity to tease some more features, potentially announce a a specific launch date, and sort of drum up excitement ahead of that products launch next year. Okay, I was listening, but my head just exploded when you (laughs) held up those two phones and you've got an Android phone and you have an Apple phone and you managed to you managed to do the two and not go crazy trying to adjust for screens and Yes, but I would I would like to not have to pack two different chargers when I go on vacation. So you know I personally (laughs) would be looking forward to this update. I'm just a captive audience, unfortunately, but you're the one out there that can manage both. Claire Duffy, thank you so much for that. Now, after the break, rising rates is not the answer to rising prices and risks more economic pain. So says the former World Bank president, David Malpass, who's speaking out against Fed policy on inflation. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. Monetary policy at the U.S. Federal Reserve is broken, quote. And then there's the sound of silence over what's actually driving inflation today. That's the warning from David Malpass, who stepped down as the president of the World Bank Group in June. In his latest op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal, he pulled no punches in his assessment of the Fed, led by Jerome Powell, describing the central bank's inflation model that is used to justify rate hikes as antiquated, when the real drivers of inflation, he says, are government policy and regulation. And all we're really doing today is putting growth at risk. The solution, he says, is a government commitment to a strong US dollar, and that, of course, is critical to price stability, also allowing dynamic business investment, aka improved regulations on things like bank lending, 
And finally, don't be silent about excess government spending and debt. And I'm pleased to say David joins us now. David, oh, as always, we have much to discuss. Welcome to the show. I do want to start with this op-ed because I do like it. The two immediate risks to inflation are, I think, fuel prices and wage prices. And and the premise of your op-ed is saying, look, um, these are the remit of government whether it's regulation on energy policy that's pushing up prices longer term or social security payments that mean that there's fewer workers than we need in the workplace. This is a problem and it's not the feds. Hi, Julia. That's that's right. Um, the Fed's already hiked by five and a half percent. And so if that's not enough, uh, it may be that that's not the only tool that should be used. So the point here is to recognize that if you just keep hiking rates, you're going to hurt production more than consumption. Uh, and that's going to only add to inflation. That's especially true because the government is one of the big parts of the economy and they're indifferent to interest rates. You could go to 10 percent uh, and it wouldn't stop the government from spending. So shouldn't there be a more direct focus on the things going on in the economy that are undercutting the productive side of the economy? Yeah, and this is the key. I mean, you point out and you caught my attention with this, that we're applauding the resilience of the U.S. economy at 2.1 percent GDP. But actually, that's weak by historical standards. And it's propped up by, to your point, government spending, excess debt levels. And that does nothing to improve future growth or boost our productivity. And actually, the Federal Reserve is an enabler of that by buying up lots of government debt. That's right. For for 10 years now, they had the rates at zero. It didn't cause inflation. So you wonder about, do they really think there's that much connection between their rates and inflation? Uh, and in the meantime, they were holding down the yield curve, really intervening heavily in markets. These are not small numbers. They ended up with a peak of $9 trillion of uh, bonds. So it massively adjusted the world uh, toward uh, toward uh, uh, activity activities that are funded by people issuing bonds. That means big governments, big corporations, and that slowed the world growth. So we have this decade, uh, already more than a decade, of slow average growth. And so there has to be a thinking that we have to break to a much faster growth plane uh, from the U.S., and then that can help the whole world lift off of the crisis that it's in. It's in a growth crisis uh, that uh, is really hurting people around the world. So I think we have to try new tools. Yeah, I want to come to the rest of the world because you and I feel very passionately about this. But the final point, because I know people reading this article, as I did, will be thinking about this too. Um, The three steps that I mentioned, and we can show them once again, you say the Fed could elicit an immediate uh, improvement in inflation expectations and in growth by sort of signaling in terms of policy that would lead to uh, rate cuts, a stable dollar and smaller central bank Uh, government bond holdings by the central bank. Um, It all sounds great in, in theory, but in practice, David, how do you do that without inciting some form of panic? To your point, we're a decade in now, at least. It's what we've come to expect, what investors have come to expect. I think there would be a balance between the prospect of sh- of uh, shorter-term interest rates going down, but mm. uh, the Fed owning less of the long-term bond portfolio. From the standpoint of the amount of money in the economy, it would be the same, but it would be shifted toward more growth 
gr growth uses. Uh, commercial banks wouldn't have to be lending so much to the Fed. You know, the Fed's paying top dollar for giant amounts of money that they borrow out of uh, banks and money market funds. The, that would be returned gradually to those entities for making loans, business loans, commercial and investment loans that are, uh, I'm sorry, commercial and industrial loans that are so important uh, to small businesses. And so the, the, the businesses look ahead. So they would immediately get the point and say, aha, we're going into a growth phase that includes lower interest rates. Uh, and so I'm going to make investments that pay off quickly. Uh, and it helps rest of the world in the same way. Yeah, it's a vital point and we need to keep discussing it. Let's talk about the rest of the world, David, because we are in a and have been in a dramatic rate rising environment. And that's exacerbated the pressure that's been, been faced by some of the poorest nations in the world and those least able to afford it at a time, as we discuss often on this show. And um, big steps need to be taken towards things like climate change and, and and society security. You were at the forefront of debt negotiations, of trying to give some breathing room to some of the poorest nations at the head of the World Bank. Where are those debt negotiations today, David? Unfortunately, I think they're still stalled. These are difficult issues. But what I found uh, in six years at the U.S. Treasury and then at the World Bank uh, was that the, the, the forces that be in the world uh, don't really want to change the system. One of the things going on is as the international institutions put more money into countries, uh, and, uh, it, all, it almost all goes to the creditors. So from the standpoint of uh, world money makers, uh, they really like the current system. They make loans, they earn interest, and then if the loans go bad, they get, they get bailed out uh, by a multilateral system. Um, the problem is the people of the countries are left in, in bad straits because they have to be the conduit. The farmers have to work extra hard in order to pay extra money in order to pay for the debt that was taken on years before. Let me take a moment to express condolences to people uh, in Morocco, but also mm -hmm. around the world. You know, in Libya, they're having flooding, 2,000 people uh, dead uh, that they know of already, and it's, it's uh, feared to go more. Uh, but the victims of 9-11 were in yesterday's uh, uh, thoughts and minds in the, in the U.S. Of the, of the Maui fires and of the Afghanistan evacuation. That still is, is causing uh, 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 trauma and, and difficulties for millions and millions of people. And so mm -hmm. I think we have to, and, uh, have to think about the very difficult lives that are being led in much of the developing world, in part, uh, because uh, their, their governments don't have good policies uh, to, to allow businesses to actually operate, women to be in the workforce, children and girls to be educated. Uh, and so th those are, I think, pressing global points and made worse now by the interest rate increases that are coming across the world. That was inevitable, uh, but they're left with floating rate debt and no way to restructure it. Zambia still doesn't have an MOU. Uh, yeah. the, the, in Ghana, they don't have the, they, they haven't made progress on defining the universe that has to be included in the debt restructuring. Chad supposedly had the, the common framework success, but there was no debt restructuring. So the people of Chad weren't benefited at all by the, by the efforts of the international community.
Yeah, I mean, David, it's a, um, you've just given us a global tour. And I know um, at the head of the World Bank, you were at the heart of these discussions and understanding, I think, the suffering of people on the ground and the complications, to your point. I think you called it um, the forces that be, the powers that be, that have vested interests that don't want things to change. David, how do we, how do we break that, whether it's the United States, whether it's the private sector, whether it's China, as the biggest creditors in the world? How do we bring them to the table and say, actually, this is one world? And whether it's climate mitigation or um, social stability rather than wars breaking out and conflict and migration, we all have to be part of the solution here. How do we how do we do that? How do we get there? I, I think individual countries have to lead and really push initiatives. We just saw the G20 uh, meeting in India, uh, and they, they, there is talk about one world, but I have the impression that what people want to do is make uh, lofty promises, uh, but not actually spend money or make the changes that are needed uh, in order to get the adjustments going on. Uh, on the debt, on the debt one, I advocated at the in Japan at the two meetings of the G7 uh, in Niigata and Hiroshima that the that the G7 ask uh, the IMF and the World Bank to really make progress on debt. They didn't do it. It's part of the G20 process. It's uh, moving very, very slowly. In fact, not moving. Uh, and so I think this is a problem of uh, the world kind of wanting to look at someone else and say they should solve this problem when it has to really be uh, self-selected by, uh, by, by countries that can really have an impact and then for them to focus on it and get to a solution. Yeah. If not us, who? David? Keep fighting the fight, please. We'll continue to have these conversations and um, try and hold some of these institutions accountable along with it. Great to chat to you, sir. We'll speak again soon. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. David Malpass there. Okay, still to come. One of Japan's most iconic attractions under threat as tourists and hikers put Mount Fuji's world heritage status at risk. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The climbing season has ended on Japan's iconic Mount Fuji, giving the UNESCO World Heritage Site a much-needed break. The number of visitors has skyrocketed in recent years, but as Christy Lou Stout explains, the surge in tourism could cost the mountain its world heritage status. Human traffic jams on sacred Mount Fuji. Oh, very cool. Yeah, just, just like a traffic jam. An ambulance en route to an injured hiker, litter on the mountainside. It's a side to Japan's popular tourist site that is not in the guidebooks. But for Mount Fuji ranger Miho Sakurai, it's just another day on the job. There are definitely too many people on Mount Fuji at the moment. The numbers are much higher than before. Famous for its snow-capped volcano, Mount Fuji has inspired artists and been a pilgrimage site for centuries. Less than two hours away from Tokyo, Japan's highest peak attracts visitors globally and in 2013 became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Over-tourism has become a big problem. This year, a post-COVID tourism boom has brought thousands more hikers to Mount Fuji, according to a Yamanashi prefectural government official. The environmental damage being done could cost Mount Fuji its heritage status, according to the local government. Fuji-san is screaming out in pain. 
We can't just wait for improvement. We need to tackle over-tourism now. Volunteers take away tons of trash each year. Climbers are urged to donate $7 to help keep the mountain clean, but not everyone pays up. And Sakurai says some behavior is even harder to control. People of all experience levels come here, including first-timers. We want to prevent accidents, so we give them advice. The risk of altitude sickness and hypothermia has been increased by a trend called bullet climbing, where hikers begin their ascent at night, pushing on until dawn, according to the Yamanashi Tourism Board. According to the local government, they start their hike from a place called Fuji's Fifth Station, where the number of climbers arriving here from Tokyo has more than doubled between 2012 and 2019. The local government also says it wants to shift from quantity to quality tourism. It says replacing the main road to Fuji with a light rail system would be a more sustainable solution. I'd be devastated if Mount Fuji's world heritage status was taken away. I want it to have that status forever, so we'll do our best to keep it that way. But with no easy fix in sight, Sakurai will keep doing her bit to protect the mountain she loves. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. And finally, on first move, an American astronaut has set a new record for time in space, and he did it by accident. Frank Rubio is in his 356th day aboard the International Space Station, the longest any U.S. astronaut has spent in Earth orbit. But it actually wasn't supposed to be this way. He was slated to return to Earth in March. But the Russian spacecraft that was meant to take him home sprung a coolant leak, so he stayed and stayed and stayed. And now he's got a ticket to ride home later this month after a total of 371 days in space. Fingers crossed. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.